that we're finishing uh, this Holy Week called Deliver Us. It's a cry for help when we realize that the problems of the world uh, run right through our own heart. And uh, we need a deliverer who cannot just deal with the problem externally, but who also can save us, save us from ourselves. Um, and uh, we've been tracking with Jesus in the Gospel of Mark as he promises and, uh, and, and offers up this deliverance. Today, uh, we're going to be talking about corruption, deliver us from corruption. And so I invite you to turn in your Bibles or your bulletins, actually to the beginning of, uh, of the service, which is Mark 11. Mark 11, Jesus' approach to Jerusalem and also his, uh, uh, his time in the temple. That's going to be our text for today. So in 1961, a racetrack manager named uh, Marge Everett was trying to find a way to ensure uh, that she could schedule races at the track in Arlington um, that would ensure her, her track the highest profit possible. But this depended on getting the right dates, and those dates were decided by the state of Illinois, ultimately the governor of Illinois and his administration. Um, and uh, the governor at the time, his name was uh, Otto Kerner. Uh, so Marge Everett decided, uh, in order to get the dates that she needed for her track to be profitable, she decided to make an offer to Governor Kerner that he would be unlikely to refuse. She offered him and his finance manager a, uh, a generous amount of stock from her company. An off-the-book deal, uh, a generous deal, ultimately a corrupt deal, and she asked him to use his official power to give her the dates she wanted, and Governor Kerner took the deal. Um, he got stock in the company, and he got wealthy as a result. He got wealthy because he was the governor. Thirteen years later, in 1974, Otto Kerner, who is now himself a federal judge, in Illinois, in the Seventh Circuit, was convicted of mail fraud, conspiracy, and perjury. And Otto Kerner, a man who once occupied the governor's mansion, a man who would dare to wear the robe of a federal judge, also would now occupy a federal prison for his political corruption. Now, you would think that this dramatic example, this incredible fall from grace, would have been a, a cautionary tale to future Illinois governors. <laughs> One would think. But Governor Kerner would soon have company with Governor Daniel Walker, Governor George Ryan, and more recently, Governor Rod Blagojevich and his hairbrush. <laughs> what is corruption? Corruption is when human selfishness hijacks human service. When human selfishness takes over human service. When private agendas takes over public duty. When private agendas, personal private agendas, takes over public duty. Corruption happens when the big compelling vision for serving the common good gets lost in the love of money or the love of sex or the love of small craven desires for enriching and pleasuring of the self. Corruption is 
When a person is granted privileges and power to be used for the sake of others, and they take that privilege and they take that power and they exercise it for themselves instead of for the common good. Now, many of us are aware that this can happen on a large scale. Usually, and it's on the news. It's kind of a regular part of the news. It's what makes us tune in and click, what's the corruption now? And we're always so shocked. NBC5 investigates a CEO that used company funds to furnish his house, a governor that tried to sell off a vacant Senate seat, um, a football coach that used the trust given to him to take advantage of children. And we tune in again and again and again, and it makes us so incredibly angry. But reporters can't follow everybody around. They follow the high-profile people around, but what if there were more reporters who could follow everybody around? Who can open up more spreadsheets? Who could, who could really track more of the mundane, normal things that happen? What would they find if they did? Maybe they would find an employee that uses company time to work on personal projects and takes home office supplies that were intended for office use only. Maybe that's what they would find. Or maybe they would find an academic advisor who subtly steers their graduate students to projects not that really would help the career of the graduate student, but ultimately would serve the interest of the professor, the advisor. Or a college student who's given a computer and some money to get education, but they use that computer and money to access pornography or to cut and paste from Wikipedia and commit acts of plagiarism. Or maybe a team leader that steers a project in a direction that will burnish their private brand and fulfill their ego needs, but really won't help the company. Or maybe a spouse that uses physical affection, something given to them to serve their spouse with, their power to give physical affection, to withhold physical affection, not as a means of drawing close to their spouse, but as a bargaining chip to manipulate their spouse. Corruption. When human selfishness hijacks human service. Yes, it happens in big ways, splashy ways, and we love to hate on it. But the instincts of corruption run through the human heart. And most of the time it happens in small, mundane ways. We're guilty of it. And we need to be delivered from it. So, how does that happen? How can we be delivered from corruption if it runs through the human heart? Some of us are tempted to react in anger and condemnation. Shame on you forever and ever for abusing the trust of others. This is a favorite blood sport in, in our day and age. We do not live in a guilt forgiveness culture, we live in a shame and condemnation culture. And shaming, as Monica Lewinsky pointed out in her recent TED talk, shame is now a blood sport that everyone loves to participate in. And there's no redemption. There's no redemption. You're shamed forever. And it can happen on a, on a massive scale given our immediate access to information. Monica says that she went from a private individual to a publicly maligned celebrity overnight and it crushed her and she's just now crawling out of that um, this game of condemnation and shame is like the game of whack-a-mole I remember playing this for the first time if any of you have tried this but it's incredibly frustrating you're given a big puffy 
um, a wand. And, and then there's these moles that come up in different places, and you're like, oh, there's one. But as soon as you come down on it, you don't hit the mole. The mole goes down, and you miss it. Another one comes up, and you're just like going like this. And after a while, you're like, wait a second. This game isn't winnable. I can't win this game. And so then you just give up. Whack-a-mole is a game of futility. So is the game of shame. Shaming people for corruption, it never actually works, does it? In Illinois and in Chicago, we have a malaise of cynicism about politics and about power because so often aldermen, uh, 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 governors, police officers, we become cynical because it's like, it's always going to happen. The game of whack-a-mole ultimately is a game of futility and we begin to despair. We need a different way out than the game of anger and condemnation and the way of despair and cynicism. Neither way is a way out from corruption. So what do we need? What do we need? Friends, we need a humble king is what we need. When we ourselves have become corrupt, when we observe corruption that impacts us, we need a humble king. We need the leadership of someone who embodies both strength and humility. Someone who can handle authority without it corrupting them. A leader who has recovered the vision for the flourishing of others. A leader who is secure enough not to grasp for the privileges of power that are within their reach. Someone who will reverse the logic of corruption. Who will make it so that human service can overcome human selfishness. So that public duty can again take priority over private agendas. That's a humble king. Zechariah was a prophet among God's people when they were absolutely broken by corruption. When they had lost heart because of corruption, internally, externally. And he spoke about a humble king like this. He said something very interesting. He said this king would not ride a war horse. A war horse symbolic of ego, power. Someone who got the job done and exalted themselves in the process, took benefits in the process. Zachariah said, no, 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 no. You are going to be given a, a king who will not do that. He won't ride a war horse. He's going to ride something different. He's going to ride the foal of a donkey, a colt. He wouldn't go around destroying the world and lifting himself up boastfully. He would lower himself, ride humbly on a donkey so that a nation could be lifted up. And here's what Zechariah said about this king. He said, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. And we need to hear that same exhortation when we're full of anger at corruption or we're full of shame at corruption or we're full of despair. We need to be told to rejoice greatly. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Mark 11 pictures this humble king marching towards Jerusalem in all humility. We can read in Mark 11, verses uh, 9 and 10. Uh, there's a crowd surrounding this humble king. This crowd is not from Jerusalem. 
This crowd is from Galilee. These are people that have been healed by Jesus, people who have been taught by Jesus, people who have been fed by Jesus. And um, they're, they're coming to Jerusalem with him because they, they know that he's going to exercise his kingship there. Everything that's been happening outside of Jerusalem is going to find a climax and a, uh, a finalization in Jerusalem. And so they're following him and they're really hopeful. Their hopes are high. And they say, and it says this, those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And I'll tell you what uh, we understand the crowds were really saying when they said Hosanna. Hosanna is an is a ancient way of saying deliver us, O king. Deliver us, O king. Get us out of this mess and throw the bums out son of David. We remember when David laid our enemies low, when he killed with the sword, when he established the kingdom in Jerusalem by might, we want you to do that again. Throw the, throw the Romans out, throw the bums out, and make yourself king because you're the son of David uh, and, and you can take care of corruption. Ride on a war horse, but Jesus does not ride on a war horse. He's chosen to ride on a cult and he's sending a message that the crowd's not getting. They don't quite understand it yet. Even his disciples don't quite understand it yet. Yes, I'm David's son. And yes, I'm riding into David's city to claim David's throne, but I'm not going to do it in David's way. It will not be by the sword. It will not be by the war horse. I will ride into Jerusalem on Sunday and I will carry out my cross on Friday. And I will be seated on my throne of suffering outside the city gate. Because that's the only way that corruption can end. And that's what a humble king does. I'll absorb the consequences of corruption into myself. And I'll do it because I love you. And I'll do it because I love those who are suffering under corruption. And I'll do it because I love those who are themselves corrupt. This is what Jesus, the humble king, will do. He will bear his authority with humility. He will ride a colt, not a war horse. He will wear a crown, but his crown will be made of thorns, and he will send a throne in the form of a cross. Incidentally, this pattern of leadership has been identified over and over again in any organization, public or private, that really thrives. And there was a a study done led by Jim Collins who wrote a book about it called Good to Great. He called this type of leader a level five leader. And he says this, level five leaders are differentiated from other levels of leaders in that they have a wonderful blend of personal humility combined with extraordinary professional will. Understand that they are very ambitious. They are very ambitious, but their ambition first and foremost is for the company's success, for the organization's success. They realize that the most important step they must make to become a level five leader is to subjugate their ego to the company's performance. When asked for interviews, these leaders will, will agree only if it's about the company and not about them. And this is the kind of focus, this is the kind of ambition that Jesus brings with him to Jerusalem. Yes, he is bearing authority, willingly. 
He doesn't back away from authority. He doesn't back away from asking people to get a cult for him. And as we'll see, he doesn't back away from exposing corruption. He will bear his authority, but he will do so in a way for the life of the world, for the sake of others. And he will take the pain upon himself so that others can be lifted up. So we need a humble king to bring us out of corruption. But the humble king is going to bring something that we do not want to let come close to us. Something very difficult to accept, but something ultimately that we need, something that is for our life, and that is healing pain. We don't just need a humble king, we need the humble king to bring healing pain into our life, into our organizations, into our families, into our relationships. And this is where things get hot. This is where the crowd is less likely to say Hosanna and more likely to say crucify him. Healing pain. We can read about that in Mark 11, starting in verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now here we see the humble king planning to bring some healing pain. He's scoping things out. It's not time yet, but he's looking around and he's scoping out the temple and the temple needs some healing pain because it hasn't been functioning like God has asked it to function. And this humble king is going to take care of that. He's going to, do, he's going to bring necessary pain so that there can be yet again a temple that can bring life to the world. Look with me in verse 12. There's a symbolic story that happens here. Uh, Mark includes it. It did happen, and it was intended to point to what Jesus would do in the temple. On the following day, verse 12, when Jesus and his disciples came from Bethany, he was hungry. This hunger is symbolic. Jesus' physical hunger is symbolic of the spiritual hunger of the nation and of the world. Hungry ultimately for God. That is the ultimate hunger that you and I have, that all humanity has. We are hungry for God. We are hungry to be reunited with our Creator. Hungry to be healed, to be completed by one who will hear our prayers and forgive our sins and restore us to our dignity. He was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. Now seeing the fig tree in the distance is symbolic for what would happen for every pilgrim that at this time was coming to Jerusalem, what could they see in the distance? They could see the temple. They could see Herod's temple on the mountain. And they could see a place where their hunger might be satisfied. A place where their souls could again be reconnected with God. And they go, these pilgrims go to see if there's, if there's any satisfaction that could come from this temple. And Jesus and his disciples go to the fig tree with the same kind of hope. Maybe their hunger could be met. But he, Jesus, could find, uh, uh, when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. This fig tree, uh, what would happen at this time uh, in the uh, agricultural calendar is that before the actual figs came in, huge leaves would be born first. And little tiny figs called pagim would form, but they're not quite edible. And so what Jesus finds, figuratively speaking, is a boastful tree. 
that is productive but is not fruitful. It's mounted on a war horse. It's huge. It's got big ambitions and a big ego. But it's not serving the life of the world. It's not satisfying anybody's hunger. Any person or organization or team or family can function this way. They can look productive. They can be busy. They can uh, look entirely uh, put together. But in actuality, they're not serving anybody but themselves. They're boastful. This is what Jesus uses as an illustration for the temple. He found nothing but figs. In verse 14, he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Jesus is shutting the tree down. He's not cleansing the tree. He's saying, you're done. Now, ultimately, this is not about the fig tree. This is about the temple. And let's read in verse 15. They came to Jerusalem. It's no longer the evening. It's right in the middle of the the temple's activity. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Jesus is hashtag shut it down in the temple. Okay? This is not cleansing the temple. This is shutting it down. This is taking all of the commerce and shutting it down. He's taking all the activities and he's shutting it down. Because it was no longer serving the life of the world. It was boastful. There were big leaves on, the, on, the, on Herod's temple. It was the most magnificent temple ever built. Dwarfing even Solomon's temple. And yet, as Jesus said in verse 17, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. In Herod's temple, they built a line. The temple authorities made a line. And they said, Hey, Gentiles, if you cross this line and go from the court of the Gentiles, which was not a thing, by the way, in the original design of the temple. If you cross the line from the court of the Gentiles, and you go into the place of worship, we can't guarantee your safety anymore. Your life is is in your own hands at that point. So stay out in the court of the Gentiles. It was no longer a house of prayer for the nations. It was no longer serving the life of the world. It was serving itself. It was a profit center for the temple families to get wealthy on, to use their privileges for personal enrichment. It was a den of robbers. One Chicago historian noted that at some point, uh, the motto for Chicago, which I'm not even going to remember the Latin, but it means, uh, it means city in a garden, was now changed to, in Latin it sounds very similar, in English it doesn't, but basically, where's mine? From city in a garden to where's mine? The temple had undergone a similar transformation in its charter, the original charter, the big vision, a house of prayer for all the nations. What a beautiful vision, but that would require sacrifice, that would require humble kings, humble priests that had been lost. Now it was ultimately a den of thieves. This is what a humble king brings. He brings the light of Christ. 
The humble king brings the light of Christ, and that, that, that light is, is, is healing, and it's painful. It exposes corruption in our hearts and in the world. And yet it's also cathartic, and it's, and it's restorative. We love to see it happen outside of us. We love to see a leader that will come in and take over a corrupt organization that's dysfunctional and open up the spreadsheets and open up the closets and go, that shouldn't be there and this is wrong and we need to go public with this and we need to confess our sins, corporately speaking, and we need to get things in order. It feels so good when that happens and we're not the ones being exposed, but we need the same things to happen to us. We do. We need the light of Christ to expose where we have become corrupt, where our human selfishness has overcome the human service that God has called us to. When our own private agendas need to be exposed so that we can repent and follow the humble king uh, to serve others, to serve the life of the world. We need a humble king who will say, no, 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 that's not my vision for your life. Getting rich, having pleasure, serving your own ego, that's not your vision. I will give you all the glory and status that you need. I will provide for you, but my calling on you is to serve the life of the world, to follow the humble king, to ride your own cult, and to follow him and to serve the interests of others. Jesus pointed again and again away from himself. He pointed to himself his status. He acknowledged that he was king. Um, but he did so for the life of the world. And like Samson, he would destroy the temple. He would let the temple actually crush him. The, the temple authorities, he was sowing seeds for his own death when he went in with healing pain in the temple. And the temple authorities would begin to plot against him. And as we all read and participated in together, ultimately his life would be taken. The temple would crush him. But... Because he allowed it to, a new temple could be resurrected. A true house of prayer for all the nations, which Jesus Christ is even today. He is here giving life to the world, communing with you, offering you his life, offering you his healing. He is lifted high as a house of prayer for all the nations. And you can look at him and your hunger can be satisfied. Our hunger today will be satisfied as we partake in the holy meal, the holy mysteries. My question to you this morning is, are you ready to accept a humble king? And are you, are you willing to accept the healing pain that he wants to bring into your life? We are called to confess and repent when we have been complicit in corruption. There are prayer ministers here. They will be up in this direction with a cross around their neck. I encourage you if you have something to confess, to go to them or go to a leader that you know here at Emmanuel and confess your own complicit uh, participation in corruption. Or confess when you have responded only with cynicism or responded only with, sh with shaming judgmentalism towards others. Go to a prayer minister and, 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 and ask for Jesus to deliver you from corruption that, that you can see but you can't do anything about. So often we can't do anything about corruption that we see. We're so frustrated. We churn inside. We need to take that churning to King Jesus. He's the one that can deal with it. He's the one that can, that can cleanse the corruption in our life and put hope in his plan, in his power. He's building a new kingdom. 
He's the head of that kingdom. It's not a corrupt kingdom, though many of its leaders struggle with corruption. Enter into the kingdom of God with the leadership of the humble king. Accept this humble king. Accept the light that he brings, the healing pain that he brings. It is from his humility and it is from his healing pain that you and I will be delivered from the corruption of this world as we participate in the age to come as it comes right here in the city of Chicago, right here in the state of Illinois. Let us also pray for our city. Let us pray for the uh, Cook County. Let us pray for the state of Illinois, friends. Let us not condemn our state, scoff at our state, our city, our county, our alderman, our mayor. Let us pray for them. Let us not condemn them. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.